Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. Well, folks, I am stoked for you to hear this episode. I got the chance to once again sit down with Drew Frider, the lead pastor of Lyft Church in Salisbury, Maryland, to talk about his recent trip to Israel. I was really excited to hear about what he got to see, and we cover both ancient biblical aspects as well as some more modern topics. So if you've been wanting to hear what he got to see and experience while in the Holy Land, the wait is now over. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is Pastor Drew Frider. Well, first off, I want to thank you for coming back onto the podcast. It's great having you back on again. You bet, man. Glad to be back. So you just got back from a rip-snorter of an adventure. You got to go to Israel, walking where David, Isaiah, and most importantly, where Jesus walked. So we'll get into your trip in greater detail in a few minutes, but would you mind explaining how you came to get to go and who you got to go with? First, you're going to have to explain what a rip snorter is. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just an old saying that I have. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I, I, I felt super fortunate to go to Israel. has been, I, I call it a short-term bucket list because I want to do it sooner rather than later. Uh, just understand the Bible better, let it pay dividends in the pulpit, all kinds of things. But um, my, my friend, uh, who's a lead pastor in Wichita Falls, Texas at City Hope Church, Ben Murray, he texted me one day, we were trying to do a ministry trip together that fell through and he goes, Hey, would you want to go to Israel if the, if, if the expenses were paid for? I'm like, heck yeah, <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah, he said Eagle's Wings is, is a ministry that uh, one of the things they do is they try to take young uh, ministry leaders to Israel to get a better understanding of modern day and biblical times so that um, we can bring trips, teams, and have a better understanding of what's going on. That, so That's just awesome. As Bishop Robert Stearns, and I'm indebted to him, and it was awesome. Nice. Now, you got to go with a lot of other head pastors. So you had said on your last message on Sunday that you— had never met most of these pastors, but they're all head pastors across the country. Uh, how was that experience? So it was about, I think, 25 or 30 of us. Um, the About 90% are like lead pastors. There was one or two associate pastors or worship leaders. But uh, yeah, uh, multiple denominations, um, mostly just life-giving pastors. Um, I knew one, <laughs> my friend Ben, and the rest I didn't. So it's always good, you know, um, just encourage people who have to do new things. Or sometimes I think the Lord uses that. He pushes you to do something that even your flesh would kind of go, I could just stay home or wait till an opportunity where I know everybody. A comfort zone. Oh, the yeah. fear of the unknown. <laughs> but I always find there's there's blessings in, in stepping into the unknown. Yeah. And God will meet you there. So, yeah, made great friendships and some are close and some are not so close in geographical proximity we were just all across america yeah but that that'll like help broaden your uh outreach and their outreach to this area absolutely yeah that's what's all about definitely got friends that will keep ongoing relationships nice so you had some flying difficulties right off the bat like you um oh yeah some issues do you feel like that was an attack of the enemy to keep you from going or do you think it was just like uh, superficial, nothing like 
hindering you from going. Well, I didn't try to interpret it that way. If you let your mind wander that way, you could. But I don't. I don't see that being much benefit because yeah. I knew I knew it was going. So I didn't look at it that way. I was really just pleased with uh, the leadership, how they handled it, um, how every uh, ministry leader in our team handled it because. Some people on the plane didn't handle it so well, <laughs> and some people of faith didn't handle it so well. Um, not that anybody did terrible, but it's just you could see the patience level, mm-hmm. and you could also see the joy level. Mm-hmm. Um, when you sit on a tarmac for five hours waiting on weather to clear, um, that seems to have cleared, and and then you know they tell you that... Uh, by the time they start flying, their crew will have expired how much time they can fly without rest. Yeah. And so they tell you, we're going to bring in another crew. Never mind, we're not. We're putting mm-hmm. you in a hotel. I was just proud of Christians being Christians yeah. because the group we were in, everybody kept patient. Everybody kept their joy. Nobody let an ominous tone take yeah. over. Yeah, I'm working at the airport. I've been in that situation a handful of times, and you're just like, wouldn't be so bad if you could just stretch your legs a little bit. Yes. <laughs> and tensions rise, and yep. you get to see when people are pressed what comes out of them. Yeah. So once you got there, what was, was it something you wanted to do right away, or did you wait until the next day and after you were, like, rested up? Well, they set the agenda. You know, they, they invested in us. And I think the agenda was a little uh, swifter and more packed than they would like if we brought a team mm-hmm. because I think they just wanted to expose us to as many things as they could. Yeah. And like now I even know I want to lead trips back and I might be getting ahead of myself, but I know I want to lead trips back. I just know I don't want to run at that pace. <laughs> um, and they say that you didn't come to Israel to sleep. So we literally hit the ground running. We flew into Tel Aviv and... Um, Within an hour, we were on our first site at wow. Joppa, right next door, which is modern-day Jaffa. And, uh, you know, they th- that was the site that Old Testament uh, Jonah tried to sail to. Yep. And so they had a whale of a, <laughs> of a, a statue there. Uh, but more importantly, that's where Simon the Tanner's house was. Okay. And so Peter was there when he was up on a roof when a Gentile... Uh, centurion sent his servants to go get him which was it's crazy story in acts that's Mm -hmm. just so cool and that's the story that really um, makes christianity available to you and i Mm -hmm. because it was a jewish faith yeah and that was the day that uh, god said don't ever call something i call clean unclean again and so um, he went and preached to a Gentile, and that Gentile got filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was like, okay, I, I now see that God is doing a bigger work even to the Gentiles. Yeah, because you always think Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles, but in essence, so was Peter. But his first um, audience was the Jews, and a lot of people always get that mixed up, I think. They, don't, they think that... Peter was strictly Jews, Paul was Gentiles, and that's it. (laughs) I agree. I actually think Peter probably legitimized Mm -hmm. the Gentiles because Paul would have probably just been described as some rogue guy who's just rebellious and doing his own thing. Mm -hmm. But it was Peter who goes, no, 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 I had an experience that I tried to get out of. And God brought messengers to my door, found me from across the land. I went... 
wasn't even trying to offer them salvation, Jesus or the Holy Spirit, and they got filled while I was speaking. So God's working in the Gentiles. And so, yeah, Paul did the most work, but I think Peter legitimized it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, So what was the weather like over there? We'll get into the more of the details of some of the stuff, but I was curious about how hot it was and stuff over there. i tell you, it was a pleasant time to go. I've learned uh, between February and May, which is when we went in May, uh, was good time. And so same thing on the other end of the calendar. So um, I'm looking at a 2023 trip um, that might be in like October, mm-hmm. uh, September, October time frame. Um, that's good. I heard you don't want to go in the summertime because uh (laughs) there is a judean desert there they're literally you're either in the desert or you're next to the desert and so it can get north of 120 degrees it's it's dry (laughs) it's dry but for us it was like 75 degrees and no humidity most days Um, you couldn't ask for better weather there was one day that got high 80s and we were in the judean desert that day and it was hot um but it was a dry heat, so I don't think I sweat the whole time I was there. It was just, um, you know, you want to cover up because my skin was getting red. <laughs> <laughs> so, like you mentioned already, you visited Joppa, where in the book of Acts, Peter raised Tabitha. And also, you said, like, God sent the vision of the animals within the sheet. I saw in the video the guy was, like, showing what type of sheet it was. So is that any significance to it, or is it just like you said, the four corners of it? Yeah, I'd have to go back and watch it because they information overloaded <laughs> us. <laughs> um, I think if my memory's recalling correctly, uh, he was talking about it having uh, some Jewish significance, uh-huh. um, but I don't remember that part as well. Okay. So what what was the like feeling going through your mind? Like, what was your thoughts as you saw? That Those I'm places. jet lag. No, <laughs> uh, it's a um, man. It it is kind of a surreal feeling. Um, every time you walk around, you're just like, wow. This all makes sense that this story happened next to this story. I didn't think about that, and and wow, what significance might that have? But also, um, you you are constantly trying to you know take the modernism out of mm-hmm. it. So. This is modern-day Israel, so it would have looked a little bit different. Um, Joppa was a little easier because it wasn't a city built on a city. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem is a city built on a city built on a city. and so Built on a mountain. <laughs> yes, yeah. And so a lot of things that happen in Jerusalem uh, might be nine feet buried beneath your feet, mm-hmm. um, even 20 feet in some areas like the Pool of Siloam. Mm-hmm. So that was... Cool, but you know, modern day looks different than what's nine feet yep. below. And now, and then the Sea of Galilee is really cool too. That's just a different area. And um, so, yeah, it, it was so helpful to see what happened at the Sea of Galilee. How far did Jesus travel to mm-hmm. go to Jerusalem? What happened along the way in the Jordan? Stuff like that, and put it together on the map. But um, yeah, you do have to take the modernism out in some places. Yeah. Um, I know that when I visited Boston a few years ago, I was getting excited because I was walking towards Old Norse Church, and that's where several of the founding fathers were. And so it's like you get that feeling where you're like, I'm walking where some of my heroes walk. Yeah. And you're just like a, a little kid again, 
And so that's the closest I've ever gotten to someone of that era. But it's like you get to walk where Jesus actually walked, who is the greatest person who ever lived. Mm -hmm. And that had to have just been nuts at times. It's a surreal feeling. And then to try to... I'm the type of person who likes to try to visualize it Mm -hmm. and to feel it. And um, uh, some places are easier than others, especially as they uh, uncover the actual archaeology. Like some places are dug out. And you're like, yeah, you've been walking on the modern road, but let's go uh, nine feet below. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, I feel it more. Um, In other places, you have to visualize more. But it is crazy knowing Jesus taught in a synagogue and I'm right here. Mm -hmm. And um, Jesus carried his cross on this road. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that just really hit you. Yeah, I'll bet. Oh, I I knew he flipped over money changers (laughs) right about here. (laughs) Everyone loves to quote that one part. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the old gentleman, I'm forgetting his name, he couldn't die until he saw Jesus, Simeon, um, Simeon and Anna, mm-hmm. Anna who spent day and night in the temple, and we were at the front steps where they would have said, Simeon would have said, um, I now can depart for I have seen the glory of the wow. Lord. And so you just know certain things happen in certain places, and yeah. um, it's just incredible to put it together and to see how big it was, or I imagined it different, and now I got a better view, stuff like that. Wow. Uh, that's mind-boggling. <laughs> I didn't imagine like the Temple Mount being so massive. Really, it's huge. I mean, I knew it was big. I think we always think of like the Temple Mount as just being the temple itself. We don't think of the surrounding areas around it. Um, so I, that can do for the expanse of it. Yeah, and for the um, um, the ones who are just like uh, getting all their history from Bible alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the majority of us. My, my, you forget that the second temple, I knew that the second temple was smaller than the first. Ah. King Solomon built an incredible temple, and then it was destroyed, and people were exiled by the Babylonians, and then Nehemiah and Ezra come back, and they rebuild it, and they rebuilt a humbler mm. temple. And so I expected it to be smaller. But uh, King Herod, who was in the era during Jesus's time and preceded it a little bit was known as a builder and he was a fickle Jew at best he was a <laughs> wannabe Jew and uh he he built he remodeled the temple in an expansive renovation yeah. and so he made it huge so it was way bigger than I expected the quote unquote second temple to be gotcha and that would have been the temple Jesus walked in because it was completed just before Jesus was born. Gotcha. So you also got to visit Tel Aviv. What was that experience like? Because you said in one of your posts that it wasn't there 75, 80 years ago. It was just a piece of the desert. Yeah. So the famous picture of a group of people standing and then you see what the city looks like now. It's the second largest city in Israel, you said, right? Yes. Yes, second to Jerusalem. That was just a, a cool story because um, you seem you are a history buff and, yeah. and, and you know those things. So a lot of history buffs know that, but for me, I, I don't know why I just I didn't put two and two together just how young Israel is. And mm-hmm. so it's uh, seventy-seven years old, I think. Yeah. And so um, they said, "Look around. Everything you're seeing is 
you know, less than 80 years old. <laughs> they built it all in less than yeah. 80 years. And uh, they were telling the story of how Israel, uh, Jews never had a place to live. They mm-hmm. were always immigrants and mm-hmm. they were always migrating and because uh, they didn't have a homeland or getting kicked out or being persecuted. And it's throughout their biblical history, but it's also throughout modern history. Mm-hmm. And um, when they were given the land in 1948? Yep. 1947 leading into it. Exactly. Yes. Um, When it became their land, they still had um, Arab settlers in different places. So um, we were in Joppa looking at Tel Aviv, uh, which shares an ocean line, um, shares the Mediterranean uh, beach line. And you could look, and they said none of this was here (laughs) 70, what, five years ago? Do the math. And um, it's just crazy that 66... Jewish uh, family members said, let's move away from what's established and build our own thing. And that's what became modern Tel Aviv. It's huge. Wow. It's like the technology hub of the world. Like they're leading in technology. I learned they created ways. Um, okay. When you do a Google search and you try to uh, type in snowman podcast <laughs> and you type SN and it starts to populate suggestions. Oh. They created the technology that suggests things Wow! And, and, and many other things. I'm looking to learn more, but they're leading the way in technology. They're leading the way in agriculture. They're leading the way in anti-terrorism because mm-hmm. they're surrounded by yeah. nations that might not like them. Yeah. And, I mean, actually, as soon as they declared that they were a country, five Arab nations immediately attacked them. And it's like they had no chance of success when you think about it. It was all miraculous. Every single step of the way through since their founding as a country, supposedly, because I, I always go back to biblical times. I was like, they were a country back then. Yes. But um, yes, from 1948 on, they've been attacked multiple times, and they have won every single time. By miraculous means. Yes. And it is crazy how people can forget about that or not even hear about it because that's not popular. Israel is like a hard thing to to go by sometimes because people are like, yay, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. But I always go back to the scripture verse, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. Yes. And that's Abraham who was in Israel. And that's one of the key things that the United States has done. They acknowledged Israel was a state, the very first country Mm -hmm. within minutes of them declaring that they were a country. Yes. U.S. is like, all right, we're in. Yes. And then they had to step back. They're like, we're not going to help you officially, but we're acknowledging you as a country. Mm -hmm. So that's, one of the cool things about Israel and the United States, that's why we're so close. Yeah, and it goes back to even our Old Testament, my Old Testament, especially a lot of the prophets, major and uh, definitely minor prophets, are really coming to life because it has a lot to say about Israel and Jerusalem. And it says that um, my people will be called back home and mm-hmm. it will be a land again. It says that this is God's land. Jerusalem and Israel is God's land. And um, though it may be occupied by an enemy for a period of time, it's my land and I will take it back and I will restore my people to it. And you're seeing um, Jewish people come home to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a term called Aliyah, okay. um, which is a Hebrew term, which means the return 
of God's people, Jewish people, to God's land. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people make Aliyah. It's considered the highest place in the world spiritually. And so when you look at it that way, you're always going up the mountain to Jerusalem as you get closer to Jerusalem. Um, The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, I believe it is. And so all of those speak about going up to the mountain of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And and so spiritually speaking, as you go to Jerusalem, you're always ascending. Um, And that's what Aliyah means. It means ascending um, back to the place of God. So it's powerful. It's powerful to walk on that land because you're not just walking in a spiritually fervent place today, like like having a, a moment, but you realize this is where... Um, God uh, uh, restored Isaac. Yeah. This is where, and saved his life and mm-hmm. with a ram in the thicket. This is where David ran through water wells to conquer the city of David, which is modern-day Jerusalem, for the first time when the naysayers were like, our blind and our lame could defend you. We're so ironclad. You'll never <laughs> beat us. And he was, you could walk through the water wells. Yeah. We walked through the wells. That's awesome. It's just... It's crazy, and um, that, that those are thirty five hundred years old, something oh like that. Oh my goodness, you, you, you you're somewhere close because it was like they, they were there when David was around, and then Hezekiah made it bigger, or like he revamped it a little bit. Yes, so we're talking, and it's still usable. That that's the craziest thing, still usable today. One of them escaped through the the water tunnels, and uh, you can actually walk in one of the tunnels that has running water. And so we heard heard some tours doing that. Okay. And you could hear them yelling at the temperature of the water was a little cold. (laughs) And in the tunnels, we're walking through the dry section, and you hear, woo! (laughs) So tell me about the Sea of Galilee. What was that experience like? Because that is mentioned some of the most frequent times in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were on there. That's where they were always fishing. So what was that feeling like? Yeah, that was one of the places I definitely wanted to go. In in our Gospels, it's like Jesus did three quarters of his ministry there um, until the end of his life at Jerusalem. And he made a few journeys there. But it's like he grew up in and around the Sea of Galilee mm-hmm. and uh, like Capernaum is where a ton of miracles happened. And they call it just the, the growing up place of Jesus because um, Capernaum's there and the Sermon on the Mount's there. And uh, even at the end of the story, when Jesus was resurrected, he told them, I'll meet you in Galilee. And so John 21, G, uh, Peter's fishing in a boat and um, they see Jesus resurrected there, barbecuing fish there in John 21. And the Bible says that... Uh, Peter jumped in the boat, uh, out of the boat when he realized it was him and swam about 100 yards. So I went swimming in the Sea of Galilee one day, and I swam out to about 100 yards, and I, I went for it. And, um, yeah, man, Peter was must have been in shape. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a football field. <laughs> I know it. I, and it was just I was trying to get uh, the visual of it, but it's not only a beautiful place to be, and it's just got – a different vibe because it's a different climate. Um, it's kind of the days we were there was almost misty. It's got a Mediterranean sun, so mm. a lot of times it's got this 
amber tones and or, um, um, red magenta and tones to it. Uh, it was just beautiful. I woke up one sunrise. I got there at sunrise to watch it appear oh, around man. the mountains. And so you can actually see on the Sea of Galilee all the shorelines. Really? So that's pretty cool. Like getting the idea of the size because one day Jesus took uh, his his disciples and they went across and they found a demon-possessed man mm-hmm. in a cemetery. Well, that's in visual sight of the rest of the Sea of Galilee yeah. things. It's in the sight of Capernaum. It's in the sight of the Mount of um, the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah. so it was just kind of neat to put it all together uh, that when Jesus walked on this water... Uh, uh, this is where the storm would have happened, mm-hmm. and it seems so peaceful and like so glassy-like that it was hard to imagine a storm until some of us pastors jumped in the water after a long day of touring for a refreshment, and um, the Coast Guard was coming by, and uh, the, the, the um, owner of the hotel we were in came and like, come out, come out, and we are like, why? It's so peaceful. Why can't we? And they were like, you never know when a storm will come and it comes swiftly. We're like, no, not really. Huh? And it was like, look, three days ago and he shows us a windstorm had done damage. And I was just like, okay, it was hard to imagine a storm coming out of nowhere until he showed us footage of storms coming out of nowhere uh-huh. on the water. And that and- it would explain why um, disciples were sailing across at night or whenever and Jesus is asleep in the boat and all of a sudden a storm comes up. Exactly. Because I was having trouble. I was like, man, this is so peaceful. How in the <laughs> world could you be in utter turmoil on this right. lake? And literally where we ate breakfast in their hotel had um, a wall damage from really? a storm three days ago because they said when it kicks up, it kicks up. Wow. And so, But it's rare. Uh-huh. But when it does, it does. And uh, he showed me flood damage. And so I was just like, wow, okay, incredible. Um, this lines up with the biblical narrative. Uh-huh. And, and so just... Could you see down or was it kind of like murky? Oh, into the water? Yeah. Um, you can only see about two, three feet into it because they had some huge fish. Uh, <laughs> one day they, they treated us to dinner on the Sea of Galilee on our last night at Galilee. And... Um, yeah, you could throw some pita bread overboard, and man, these were some massive catfish. And so they had catfish, and they had what they call Peter's fish uh, that they fed us one time, which was a lot like tilapia. And okay, yeah, you don't um, think of catfish being in Israel? I know it. Um, I, I I think it was a version of catfish. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily see the whiskers. Right. They, they called it catfish. <laughs> it was huge. I, I couldn't believe, believe it. it. Well, that um, another thing. So many people don't think of what the fish were like over there. We think, I guess, more modern times. We think like uh, bluegills, sunfish, the little ones. Like, that must have been a lot of fish for them to be breaking the nets. When you say that they're like huge catfish size, there's a lot of big catfish out there. Yeah. So that type of fish, they're catching that in the net and they're breaking the nets. That makes, I think, people have like... Okay, I was reading that wrong. Yeah, that's a good point. Could have been catfish, which were massive. Um, it could have been what they called the Jesus fish, which I have on my social media on a plate. <laughs> it took up about half a plate, you know, oh, dinner wow. when they when they cooked it up and basically served it, you know, full head and tail on. Or, or um, you could have said instead, of, "Oh wow, it's ate me out." 
Oh, <laughs> I, had to th- I had to throw that one in there. <laughs> Hope for your listeners you edit that. <laughs> oh, that makes it better. Um, but yeah, all kinds of things. Actually, they discovered a what they're calling a Jesus boat. Really? Within like 10 years over there. It was buried, and they were going through um, a low tide and maybe a bit of a drought, and it unearthed um, a boat that was down there. And they can't prove Jesus was in it, and they can't prove the disciples were in it, but they have archaeologically proved it is from the date time period of Jesus and the disciples' wow. time. And it, so it looks like a boat that they probably fished out of. And they were only able to keep um, like the front third of it, and the rest had deteriorated. Oh. It was so waterlogged that when it actually got exposed to air, it would start deteriorating really? as well. So they scientifically found a way to preserve it uh-huh. uh, and to bring it home. And they got it in a museum, and we got so to take pictures. So th- that of picture you have, that's only a third of the size? Yeah, it's about a third wow. of it. Yeah. Wow. That that's a pretty decent size just from the picture. Yeah, it's right uh, near Capernaum. I forget what town, but somewhere on the Sea of Galilee. And we got to go on a boat ride out there, worship and preach a message. It was just fun. Awesome. You also got to go to the Jordan River, and you got to do something that was pretty neat there. Can you share with what you got to do there? Yeah, so the Jordan River comes from the Sea of Galilee, which Sea of Galilee is up north, and it streams and connects down and flows into the Dead Sea. And so while we were traveling south towards Jerusalem, uh, we were in the Judean Desert, which uh, I always imagine deserts like sand, but it's a rock desert. Um, but the Jordan River goes all the way down that. And um, that was about the area where Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist. Now, that all lined up and it made tons of sense to me because it is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And that makes sense since John the Baptist was known as a man of the wilderness. He was a little bit of a uh, wild guy to a lot of people's <laughs> impressions. Honey, which honey's very prevalent in that land. And they said he ate locusts, which um, I think one tour guide was suggesting that there's a type of tree that um, has a uh, almost like a, a mega-sized pea pod that is in the shape of a C that they call locusts um, because it's it it's kind of looks like the shape of a locust. I don't know if he was saying that's probably more likely what he was eating or not, but either way, it was a vegetarian diet. <laughs> um uh, I like to imagine that's probably what he was too because there were huge peas that were coming out of this thing. Um, but yeah, I got to get baptized where John the Baptist would have baptized Jesus. They know it's like within a mile radius, okay. maybe maybe less than that. And so um, it was an authentic site and um, it's just awesome to be where Jesus would have said, more importantly, where John the Baptist would have saw the Holy Spirit come out like a cloud and fall on Jesus. and um, Now, question about that. Was that only John could see that, or was that the people gathered around? Or I, I can't remember from what, what the Bible says. It's a good question. And see, when you go to Jerusalem, there's, you're going to come across a lot of things that will make you read your Bible. Because it makes me want to go back and see that too. I know John the Baptist saw it. Uh-huh. And that's how he knew that he knew that he knew this was the Messiah. Right. This is the promised one. Because God promised him that. Um, 
But uh, yeah, sometimes tour guys will tell you things. You're like, that's not how it was yeah. in my Bible, because <laughs> they uh, they say there's three types of sites uh-huh. in in Israel. There's A sites, B sites, and C sites. C sites are we think it happened here. Uh, B sites are like we know it happened within like a half a mile, mm. and then A sites are like we know that we know that we know that we know this thing happened here. Wow. And so, yeah, the Jordan baptism was kind of in a B site. Mm. It, it happened really darn close to here. Right. That, that's that's incredible. So on your travels from Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem, did you get to see any of the like wilderness caves that David may have hid from Saul in? Yeah, that gave me a ton of perspective because, again, a Judean desert, it's hot. It's not luxurious. It, um uh, and the caves, it's so like remote and maybe even desolate that I could even see why Saul would say, if you don't go find them now, we're never going to find them because mm-hmm. he could be in any nook, cranny, crevice or whatever. There's various caves in the side of certain rocks. Um, it wouldn't have been pleasurable to try to hunt them down. Um, but probably the coolest part in all of that for me was when you come across En Gedi, which is kind of near the Dead Sea. Um, you're in a crazy, expansive desert. It's hot, rock everywhere, very little greenery at all. And then there's this little bit of an oasis and a stream Mm-mm. called En Gedi, which is where um, David would have been in hiding multiple times, but also where he wrote Psalms 23. Ah. Um, um, you, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me besides uh, green pastures, besides still waters. He quiets my soul. I he could have wrote that while he was running from, from Saul, but it's just like, my goodness, this is an oasis in the middle of a heated death land yeah <laughs> this is remote yeah and um there's this oasis and this beautiful is there spot. also probably where um elijah was like that area uh they described elijah closer to um the sea of galilee because we got to see mount carmel okay and well that's where he would have had the showdown with right the thousands of prophets but like when he was immediately hiding um from jezebel i think like where the ravens went and fed him man maybe so see that's the cool thing about going I, you'll chew on Israel for the rest of your Bible reading because mm-hmm. you'll start going, okay, where was this and when in proximity? And so there's so many things like what you're saying that it's like, I, I just want to read. I, yeah. I want to read my Bible so much right now because nice. it's, it's just like, uh, what does this mean? And how does that play in? And where was that at? And I got to see, like, uh, not far from Mgeti on the other side of the mountain range, you, you, you got to uh, point out where... God would have told Moses, this is the closest I'm letting you be to the promised land. And it was it was almost heartbreaking and awe-striking because it was like he would have stood on that mountain looking from one mountain range across the valley to another mountain range called Jerusalem mm-hmm. going, I can see it, but I can't behold it. And this is as far as my journey goes. Joshua will take it from here. That That... That's probably one of the hardest stories, I think, just because there are consequences to sin, and that was Moses's consequence. Yeah, and Moses was one of the closest people to God that was ever allowed to get close to God. He got to yeah, he knew see God. Face. Yeah, and he got to see his back. Yes. 
So for God to say, you messed up enough that you won't go into the promised land, that should weigh, I think, heavily on everyone. It slows me down because he seemingly, um, what what was he guilty of? Anger? Um, taking it too far? Mm-hmm. Man, how many of us have not dealt with anger and taking it too far? Yeah. And so... Um, I don't want to, that really does put it in great perspective that I don't want to miss out on promised lands because I just am not staying controlled in my anger, letting him speak, letting him, letting him be truly represented through me instead of you misrepresented me when you struck it twice and when you took it too far. And so, yeah, great, great message there. Wow. You should preach that. <laughs> so you got to visit Qumran, and yeah. that is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were later found. Mm-hmm. Um, that story, I've, I've known that story since I was a little kid because the Gates of Zion series by Brock and Bodhi Taney, um, they deal with the foundation of Israel becoming a state. Okay, cool. Um, and the very first portion of their series is a boy finding the Dead Sea Scrolls and taking it to the archaeologist. Like, this is nothing ordinary. This is something yeah. very special. And then throughout the story, they're like reading it in like a normal Bible. And the guy's like, that's in this Bible. And it's reading from the portion of the scroll. Yeah. So what was like seeing that? Because it was a, like a holy community set aside, oh, yeah. from, set aside from everything else. So it was like an Essene community, um, just like maybe to give your listeners a better understanding, um, Christianity today has a lot of denominations. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Jewish uh, Jewry or Judaism had kind of some sects. And so uh, one of them was Essene. And mm-hmm. the Essenes were the ones who didn't want to live in Jerusalem Roman-occupied Jerusalem, who they believed were tainting their religion and causing uh, them to wander too far from their faith. So they said, forget this. We're going to move into a remote desert of a community where we can live in purity, sanctity. We're going to live the Bible the way the Bible reads to us. And that would have been the Old Testament and the Torah and all that. And so, yeah, they were a remote community in the Judean desert there's nothing luxurious about where they chose to live. But yeah, Qumran was well-developed as a holy Jewish site, almost like a modern-day theology school mm. because these people, uh, uh, the average Jew washed once a week in the, the mikvahs, which was like a bathing place where they would immerse themselves to cleanse themselves once a week before they go to synagogue mm-hmm. and different things like that. These guys were doing it three times a day. Oh, wow. And uh, these guys were eating together. It was a male-only community. So it was very much like a monastery theology school, yeah. uh, you could maybe call it. And that's where they believe John the Baptist came out of it. Like, oh, okay. like he was an Essene. It wasn't that far from where you could probably look, um, you know, tens of uh, maybe like 50 miles away um, and see where we got baptized. Because okay. it's all just... Desert, so mm-hmm. you could see hundreds of miles. Yeah, and so it was easy to think he could have wandered from there. A lot of people believe John the Baptist was definitely an Essene because he was different than most, right. and he was holy and he was on fire. Well, that's so, actually gonna what is gonna be one of my questions. Like, uh, what time frame do you think they were around? Like, some people think they were, or like me, uh, they didn't come till after Jesus was back in heaven. 
or were they there before then? I think they were there before then because I, I, I believe what they say about John the Baptist being an Essene. Mm-hmm. It lines up with a lot of biblical text and what we know about him and him being a sort of outsider and out in the wilderness. He was outside Jerusalem in the wilderness. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, Qumran, and, and they were known for being studiers of the text. Mm-hmm. And so they reproduced the text and they wrote them. And so they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and that, that's just... how they hid them in those clay jars and put them in caves because then Romans sacked the entire nation and they did not spare Qumran there. No, yeah, um, yeah. So they preserved what they thought were the Holy Script, what they were, they were the Holy Scriptures, but they were able to preserve them. And we have that evidence today to back up that biblical stuff is Absolutely. True. So legitimizes things that we found this how long ago? 60 years ago? Uh, yeah. Um, just uh, just over because it was 1946-ish, something like that. And they got like the whole books of the Bible in this mm-hmm. thing. Like all of Isaiah's in it and, and, and portions of every biblical text. So it so legitimizes so much. And to be right there and to see that like yeah they wanted to isolate themselves from the world jesus often taught you know what uh, you got to be in the world but not of the world mm-hmm. and so they they probably took it too literal yeah. uh, something that i teach is that jesus did show up more in jerusalem than Qumran. <laughs> so when jesus comes back he comes back for the less than perfect person yep. and so that's really cool to know but he also uh he went to see john yeah and and um yeah that's the verse of um, doctor doesn't visit a well man. He mm. visits the sick. Dead so, on. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. So going through all these different places, what was the military presence like? Because Israel is on a constant threat of rockets from Hamas and Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. There's no other way to put them. Um, they're out to always try to destroy Israel. They have no qualms saying that publicly. So what was like, were there guards at every single place you went to? Or was it like they were there, but you couldn't see them? So first thing I want to say is um, uh, I, I, I don't always know everything about current world news. Mm-hmm. So for someone who doesn't know anything, I can maybe help them. And then for people who know way more than me, this will probably only, you know, just give even greater context that um, a lot of people question, is it safe? Is mm-hmm. it dangerous? I, you're a crazy man going over there. It felt more safe than walking around New York City or wow. even Buffalo in light of what we mm-hmm. just went through. Yeah. Um, it was crazy safe. Um and I learned a lot there. Uh, I also want to say that um, a lot of the narrative that we hear is that like people took the land from the Palestinians and different things like that. And what I learned was, number one, Palestine is not a place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have a a land. Right. Um, and you can read your text. You can read the Bible, and it will prove that it was always Jewish territory. Um, you can read Josephus, which mm-hmm. are extra biblical texts and yep. always see it's Jewish territory. And then um, uh, you could do archaeological digs and it just proves it was always their land. Yeah. It's just giving them uh, their land. Um, another thing you'll find is some areas um, are like Arabs and Jews mixed. Some are Israeli and uh, uh, Jews mixed. And there's also uh, Palestinian occupied 
parts of Israel. And what's crazy is you'll never go to an Israel area that says your life's in danger if you come over here. But when we went to like Bethlehem, for example, it's in a Palestine-occupied or, or an Arab-occupied territory. And there are signs up that say, if you're an Israeli, do not enter under threat of your life. Wow. It's really strong verbiage. Uh-huh. But that narrative doesn't normally get to us that like, yeah. um, it's, it's a lot of times Palestinians that are highly threatening Israelis. Mm-hmm. It's not Israelis threatening them. Yeah. In fact, that's why we got to meet with the IDF, the Ooh. Israeli Defense Force. Nice. And, and they even said we're a defense force, not an attacking force. Yep. Um, and so uh, it was it, it, it was so eye-opening for me to see that, you know, A, it was always their land. And mm-hmm. so it, it's, it's giving them back what historically is proven to be theirs. Uh, but B, uh, they let Arabs be on their government. Mm-hmm. They let Arabs and Muslims vote. They yep. let Palestinians vote. As yep. long as you're... They have all the rights that you can have. They have rights to the technology and the land and uh, to have a voice at the table and all kinds of things. It's oftentimes the Palestinians who are like trying to make it look like um, it's the other way around. They're the attackers uh-huh. and we're being oppressed by them. And it's totally a free state that way. Well, I know that a lot of times when Israel is going to say retaliate to a mass of um, rockets that they are fired on, they warn the people they're about to fire into. They're like, leave this building right now or we can't be responsible. But they always give them fair enough warning, fair enough time, and then they launch their uh, counterattack, and every single time they never kill anyone. I, I'm Except maybe like a handful of times or something. And it's, but Palestinians and all the they have no qualms killing any innocent civilians. People had to run into uh, bomb shelters all the time. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you're more abreast of that, which I totally trust that. I, From my experiences and what I learned, like I learned about their Iron Dome. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think I knew about it, but not, not intimately. Yeah. And now um, it's, it's a crazy cool technology mm-hmm. that covers them that if anybody fires a rocket at them, immediately a counter-rocket goes and takes it out. Yeah. And so I think they said... A few years ago, if I'm getting the numbers right, uh, one Palestinian um, territory or, or, or whatever, they fired something like 616 missiles at them and only six made it into yeah. their land. Just yeah. crazy effective. Um, and then speaking to is it safe to be there, it was it was crazy safe. Like um, they pointed out that in Chicago there uh, last year there was like 638 murders. I believe it. Um, last year in Israel there was, including terrorist attacks, six. Wow. And, and, I mean, it's just never once did I feel unsafe. Not not when I walk through Muslim territories. Uh-huh. Um, it's a little unsettling when you go to um, an Arab territory and you see these signs that speak about death, but then never once were they mistreating us. Mm-hmm. Um, they just, um, the, uh, it was a warning to Israelis. And so um, it, it was for the tourists, it was easy to go to, um, felt safe. Uh, another reason it's safe is um, every single, uh, when you graduate at 18, Every single boy is enrolled into the army for three years. 
mm-hmm. and every girl for two. Wow. And, and then after they've served that amount of time, they're a part of the reserves mm-hmm. until they're about 65. Really? So um, basically the whole land has been taught how to defend itself. And so when you think about this, if there's an, a terrorist attack in New York, the average person does not know how to defend themselves nope. or is equipped. But in Israel, every single one of them has been taught to run to the danger and not away from it. And so that it, it's, it's, it feels safe for a number of those reasons. That's why the set slogan, never again, yes. is so prevalent. Because after the Holocaust, they were like, we are never going to be unarmed. We are never going to just cow down to whatever they demand. Mm-hmm. And you saw that multiple times in World War II. The Warsaw Jews, uh, the Belarusian Jews, they've made heavy resistance. And they're like, we're, we're not going to cow down to it anymore. And so that's yeah, that that's awesome. Where it's like these people are trained to fight. Even if they don't look it anymore, they're trained. Yeah. They'll take you down before you can even blink. They took us to caliber three, which is one of the nation. I'm sorry, one of the world's leading anti-terrorism um, places in Israel sites. Wow. And it was it was crazy just to hear how they train. And they shared how Germans they train Germans how mm. to fight now, yeah. like which is so backwards. They said our Jewish blood was cheap back then, mm. but now we know how to defend ourselves. Never again, like you said, but not to be um, some sort of lording power. Right. But um, they have even been able to teach Germans to the point of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they teach all kinds of world powers, uh, a lot of their secrets. They're very open-handed. Yeah. I mean, like I said, with their technology, also with their agriculture. I just preached a message this past week on Lift Church's podcast that people can check out called Deserts Bloom, but they've learned how to make a desert agriculturally bloom and give them fruit. So they're leading the way in agriculture, technology, defense, all kinds of things. Really, it sounds like the world's a much better place when Israel's blessed. I believe it. (laughs) Um, So a few other places you got to visit, uh, Shiloh, where the original tabernacle was, or uh, when Samuel was around so that's at the end time of judges um could you share a little bit more about that what was that feeling like do they know exactly where that was around yeah they call they call it shiloh okay um and it sounds like it's more accurate um they they call that an a site okay they're literally excavating where the portable tabernacle would have been kind of set up more permanently. Mm-hmm. It wasn't made permanent, but it stayed put for a while right, right there. And so um, uh, it, it, it was just a cool sight. That's also where Hannah mm-hmm. would have prayed her prayer to a priest about uh, her infertility issues. And um, the priest thought she was drunk and then ended up blessing her. <laughs> and she had Samuel. And yeah. that's where the whole books of Samuel's came out of because yeah. of his birth at that place. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. One or two of the uh, technology pieces that would have told the story better were unavailable, uh, which was a big bummer because somebody on our trip who had been there before said this was one of their favorite spots. Wow. And, and so, um, and not to mention that was on our last day. So uh. I was having American fever missing my family. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm telling you, that was an incredible sight. They're excavating 
the uh, the the actual temple site. I took a rock from the Holy of Holies. Oh, nice! And they even found shards of pottery because they would um, when they would eat from the temple. Uh, they would consider that so sacred that after they ate, they would break their dishes. And really? so they found all the shards of pottery kind of confirming that I want to study that more. That's hmm. one of my to study a lot of, but I even got a pottery shard oh, wow. from there, which dates back to Holy biblical moly. times. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, uh, back at Shiloh, they also, modern day Israel planted a winery there. So they were they were uh, growing grape trees and and all that and um, there is an Old Testament prophecy that says one day your hills will flow with wine again. Ah. One of the crazy stories that I, I, I just learned is that they only started trying to grow um, a, a vineyard there um, just a few years ago, really? maybe a decade or two, and and and. We sh- I should have known that. Jesus told parables, including vineyards. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, a master sets up a vineyard and leaves it to the tenants and yeah. then sends his son to check on it. Uh, stuff like that. Well, um, that Old Testament prophecy came true recently because they not only, uh, when they bottled their first bottle of wine, they submitted it to an international contest and they won in their first entry ever over the French <laughs> it's just it's just crazy that um deserts will bloom again and they said uh, something about uh the uh, a grape trying to grow in a hard uh ground and environment to grow does something that enriches the grape to the point where literally the mountains of zion are wines are flowing again wow it's just wow I mean, Scripture I'm not filled again. I'm I'm that's I'm not really into to, to wine. I am into prophecy coming yeah. to, and I was just like, look, here it is again. Mm-hmm. Like it's over and over. God says He'll do what He said He'll do. Yeah, if He says He'll do it, you know He's going to do it. And so when He says He'll forgive you of your sins. He's forgiven you of that sin. When he says, I'll restore my people, he's restoring his people. I yeah. mean, it's just, you could trust him. Wow. That, that's that's incredible. So you um, got to visit Masada also. Now, that place has some troubled history. It's crazy cool. That It was the last of the holdouts for the Zealots yes. during the Roman occupation. And it's... Sadly infamous because that's where a lot of the Jews decided to commit suicide yes. rather than surrender to the Romans. They probably would have been killed any either way, but the fact that they just decided to jump off the cliff or kill themselves is just kind of heartbreaking, but also just like... Why would they do that? Mm-hmm. So that was one of my questions, and I didn't know as much, and it's now one of my fascinations to learn more. Uh, Masada was created by King Herod to be a bit of a uh, safe place to run to, knowing that the Romans are capable of anything, and if they come, he's going to have a fortress. Mm-hmm. And it's out in the Judean desert, mm-hmm. just south of En Gedi, okay. so you can see where David was, and the only water source mm. is 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 within eyesight but it's miles away and um in a hot hot desert that gets north of 120 degrees during the summer so remember jesus often told people is one of the things he was accused of blaspheming is that that temple that you love so much 
all of those stones will be knocked down. Mm-hmm. And that happened in 70 A.D. Yep. Um, so Jesus would have died somewhere around 33 A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, 70 A.D., it all comes down. And after it comes down, the Jews retreat to Masada, mm-hmm. which is... Um, out in the desert where they can fortify themselves. Mm -hmm. And the Romans come and they find them there and they siege them there for three years. And so in Masada is a mountaintop that is uh, defendable because there's just no way to get to it right? um, without anybody being able to easily... So they build like huge siege engines and... King Herod literally said, find me a mountain that is not connected to the other mountain ranges so that... I could be on the top and I would be able to defend myself from any attack. And so it was highly fortifiable. And um, the Romans had a harder time at the ground. You can see the rocks that they built as a siege and you can see where their camps were. Um, but they had no water, and it was hot, and the Dead Sea was worthless, which is right there uh, for water. So they literally had to trek all the way to Engedi mm-hmm. to get water. And uh, eventually, after their third, uh, they didn't realize that they have all the water they need. They grew crops up there. They had food that Herod stored up there. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to siege themselves forever up there and never come down. So after three years, they're like, I can't do another summer out here. Right. We're going to have to attack. And um, it's a crazy story how they actually used Jews that they captured to build a ramp up to this mm. top because they knew Jews wouldn't kill Jews. And so they actually yelled from the top, why would you, they've already got you, why would you build them a ramp to take us? And yeah. um, and, and so they, it was entrapment. And yeah. uh, when they got to the point where they knew they would take over the castle the next day or so, um, they found lots that 10 leaders drew. And so those 10 leaders said, would we rather die a semi-honorable death than to let um, them rape our wives and enslave our children. Mm. And so they came to the decision, we're all going to go kill our own families. Mm. And then you 10 men, um, it's dishonorable to die by suicide. So you go kill your own families. And then one of us is, we're going to draw lots to see who's the one who has to kill the rest of us mm. and then commit the unpardonable sin to them, which is commit suicide. Wow. And so only one technically committed suicide. But well, didn't some like jump off or I, I could be wrong. They didn't tell us that part of the story, but okay. they did show us the actual lots. Wow. Like they actually have the lots with names on it and stuff like that and where they found those lots wow. in the corner of Masada. It was an awesome site. I want to go back again. I want to learn more. Yeah. A lot of our tour was like, we need to see it quick and we need to move on. Yeah. So one of the most compelling things you got to do was you got to sit down and hear directly from a Holocaust survivor. Yes. What was like that experience like? And also, did you get to visit the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem? Yes, it was. It was both in the same. Um, we walked through the Holocaust Museum, which was incredibly powerful. It was heavy. Um, one of the quotes that stood out to me that I think we all need to keep in mind is uh, one quote said, "They came for the communists, but I was not communist, mm-hmm. so I did nothing. Then they came for the socialists, but I was not socialist, so I did nothing." 
Then they came for the Jew, and I was not Jewish, so I did nothing. Then they came for me, and there was no one to defend me. Mm. And I was just like, wow, you know, inactivity and passivity, that spoke to me because I'm one who's slow to jump to judgment, mm-hmm. especially if I feel ignorant towards something. Um, it was crazy applicable to, like, what's going on with Ukraine today. Yeah, uh, Because I'm not super educated on what's going on, who's at wrong, who's at right. It's easy to just go, I'll just throw my hands up and not engage. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you read that and you're like, okay, we, we have to do our research. We have to find out where the injustices are. And we can't be a part of just going, you know, I just let them kill a whole bunch of Jews under my watch because I didn't know what to do. And mm-hmm. I'm in America. I mean, you even think about it, America was not going to get involved with that war had they not taken it to us at Pearl Harbor. And so we too were guilty of not doing very much. Even the Christians Mm -hmm. in Germany did not do very much. Right. They, 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 not until it was too late push came to shove. I think a lot of people forget that Hitler was uniting the country. It's like, we need to build up Germany. And then he's like, oh, and we're going to blame you for it. And she was like, wait a sec, what? Because I think at the beginning, early, early 30s, a lot of Jews supported Hitler. And then they saw what he was doing. Mm. And they're like, oh, crap. This yeah. guy ain't good. Yeah. And a lot of Americans supported Hitler. Like Henry Ford is one of the biggest names that was a supporter of Hitler. And then he, they, everyone started seeing what yeah. they were doing. And they're like, okay, this guy's bad news. Yeah. And then they start, all right, we're taking him out. Yeah. So good points. Like, it's so easy for us to read our history books and go, "How could we ever let something like that? That will never happen again." Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to forget that from World War One, they felt embarrassed yep. and they felt like uh, they were lower than dirt, and yep. so they were looking for someone who would restore their honor. The only person audacious enough that they thought they could do it was Hitler, who had wild ideas. And he was Austrian. And, and <laughs> He wasn't even German. <laughs> I didn't know that. But it makes sense. If yeah. I was humiliated yep. and looking for a savior and a redeemer yep. and someone to restore honor, you're like, I don't know if I ascribed everything he ascribes to, but I believe he can actually get us back to where we were. And so they appreciated him for that. Almost everybody unanimously mm-hmm. did until they started seeing the dark side of, wait, his ambitions are way out of line yeah. with what we thought we were signing up for. And by that time, it was too late. Yeah. And I was going out a little bit on a limb thinking, I could be wrong, so I'm just saying this out there for context, if Jews were supporting him at first, I could be wrong on that. So I'm just Yeah, I don't know about that at all. Um, So what was the visit with the Holocaust survivor like? Yeah, her modern day name is Raina Quint. Um, That wasn't her birth name, but it was moving to just sit and listen to the story. There's only about 500 Holocaust survivors left alive. Um, And so she's one of them. And, and, you know, a lot of them probably aren't willing to tell their story Mm -hmm. because they've lived through nightmares that we can't even imagine. I don't think any of us want to imagine. No. Oh, no, no. I knew it was heavy and and you needed to hear it. and, And she was joyful as she taught it which is a god story all by itself but um the part that really hit home was the fact that she was six years old when it came to her footsteps like the the war came to Mm -hmm. to to start 
meaning ma- uh, major changes for the Jews. And well, my she, my youngest daughter, six years right. old. Right. Was she German, or what? What was? Does she know what her nationality was when that was? Uh, no, she didn't talk about that as much, and it's really hard because you think about how much do you remember as you're six? Barely anything. And, and um, I, I was thinking about that as she, like, she doesn't remember the face of her birth mother. Mm. She doesn't, um, she knows she had three brothers, but she tried to, wh- when they tell you you have to evacuate your house what and you've got only two hours to do it, she said, what kinds of things would you take? Right. But the thing is, even if you took pictures and stuff, one of the reasons uh, they strip you down um, and wash you at a concentration camp is not so that uh, they make sure you're clean, it's so that you can't hide anything. Mm. When you're butt naked, uh, you can't hide diamond rings, you can't hide photographs, you can't hide anything. Wow. And so one photograph that she held for a, a while in her journey got ripped up by a Nazi soldier. Wow. Um, so she cannot remember her family. She can't. Re- she just remembers that she clung to her mother as a six-year-old when they corralled them into a church. And they were along the external wall and a, a door was cracked open and she saw a stranger of a man who waved at her and said, run to me. Wow. And so she said, what? She, she can't even recall the event as much as she can. She went back and took pictures by that door. But she was like, what does a six-year-old in fear do? Yeah. They cling to their mother. Right. Why would I let go of my mother? Why would my mother let go of me? Why would I run to a strange man if not maybe God nudged me, maybe my mom pushed me? All I know is I I let go of her as a six-year-old and ran, and I never saw my mother or brothers Mm. again, and they were killed in a concentration camp. You can't even imagine that. No. At six years old. No. And that stranger brought her to her father, who was having to work in a bit of a ghetto now, Uh and he told her... um, you're a bigger girl for six years old. Um, girls are useless to them. I'm cutting your hair. You're now a 10-year-old boy. Act like a boy. Don't talk much. And just do the work they assign. So she was literally bringing water to the men mm-hmm. before they decided to segregate them and send them off to concentration camps. And when that happened, her dad knew she, he could no longer pass her off as a boy. And so he gave her to a teacher who spared her life and nurtured her for a, wow. a bit and just crazy stuff yeah put her in hiding and different things like that so it was the hand of god and it was the compassion of people caring for not even their own i mean sure it was their own people the right. jews but it wasn't their biology biological blood right you mentioned on sunday that she wrote a book mm-hmm. um where could people find that book yeah great question so I brought it home, and my, my daughter immediately started reading it. It's called A Daughter of Many Mothers, Her Horrific Childhood and Wonderful Life by Raina Quint. Um, you can find it on Amazon. In fact, some of our members of our church already bought it and are starting to read it. So yeah. powerful. I'll bet. So now that you've met someone personally who survived that horror and the evilness of that era— what goes through your mind when you hear of someone who just claims that the Holocaust didn't happen? It was all fabricated. That's a lot of people. Some believe that, and it's just like, how? I don't all even the know evidence? how people could believe that. I didn't know people like that there, existed. There are a handful, it's, and it's just it's like, educated. I mean, you can go to um, you can go to Auschwitz today, yeah. and you can see it. I know. Yeah. I know the Germans tried to wipe out a lot of it. Um, 
just out of their history, but Auschwitz is there. Um, she went there. Um, she rewalked the land. She had pictures of the door she was at. I mean, it's just completely unfathomable to believe that that didn't exist. Yeah. You can see the propaganda. You can see photographs, video clips, testimony survivors. Uh, it's just, it's, you're trying to convince yourself right. of something that's not true. Right. If that's the case. Yeah. Um, she can remember it was the British that liberated her camp. Wow. And she could remember the name of her camp. I can't at the moment. Okay. Wow. Well, this this has been an awesome interview, and I really appreciate you coming back on. Now, since our last conversation, a lot has happened with Lyft. Can you uh, share a little bit about what's been going on, like the building and everything like that? Yeah. Um, well, we've been trying to be faithful as a church and just try to affect people's lives for, for Jesus and, and, and see their lives liberated and free. And we're seeing salvations every week, baptisms multiple times a year. It's just so exciting. Young people, old people, testimonies, um, diversity. It's just it's a fun thing to be a part of, and we've been saving diligently, too, trying to be good stewards of everything God's given. And so, yeah, just a few months ago, we, we signed on the old Gander Mountain building in, in Salisbury. We're going to lease with a trigger to purchase the uh, middle 45% of that building, man. And we're just so excited because uh, work is about to start next week. Oh, um, boy. The permits have been approved for phase one. And so, yeah, uh, we're just excited about getting going with developing a place of our own mm -hmm. that uh, we'll be able to use seven days a week nice. instead of just uh, a couple hours a Sunday. Right. So you've mentioned that um, one of the things you want to do is do trips to Israel. Oh, yeah. Uh, what what is How did that like situation come up like you wanted to do that? Yeah, well, I, I've always wanted to support Israel, but I needed to know more firsthand, and this trip provided that for me. And I also was looking for, the, there's millions of ways to support Israel. What's the way God wants us to? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we'll start supporting this organization that um, not only feeds people there, but they also uh, educate people about Israel, and they take people there. And so, yeah, I'm looking at trying to put together a trip in 2023, maybe uh, September, October. Well, you can count on the snowman going. Come on, man! It would be a, it would be an honor for you to come. I, I, I've always bring this to go. microphone and podcast from Jerusalem. Come yeah, on, yeah, that 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 is something that I've always wanted to do, but it's like. I know that costs a lot. So yeah, if anybody wants to, it sounds like it's in the neighborhood of thirty-five hundred to four thousand per person. Uh, that should cover everything but your souvenirs and lunches. Okay, so that's that, good to know. That's um, that's a little better than I thought. I thought it would have been about five k. Yeah, maybe at the end of the day, uh, some people might spend that much, or you can stay on the frugal side. But um, yeah, I'm pumped about that. That's why I think we'll do that maybe every other year or every third year. Because I just think there's so much to learn from Israel. Mm, the, the Old Testament tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So even by going, it educates us that um, what's happening in the current affairs, but also what Jesus did here. Yeah. And um, it's just something powerful about praying there and praying for the people there and building relations with uh, people there. We, we got to meet with all kinds of rabbis there, and it was just really neat to learn from them. They got deep revelations on the Torah, which mm -hmm. is the first five books of the Old Testament. Yeah. And so 
I, I loved sitting at dinner tables just talking to rabbis yeah. about, tell me your deepest revelation from Leviticus, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a tough one. You're like, uh. <laughs> And actually, no, it was a fascinating really? answer. His answer was Leviticus tells us that God cares about each other. Because all those laws are about loving each other and respecting each other and honoring each other. I was like, that's brilliant. I wouldn't have said that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like people are like, I'm going to read the Bible. They get to Leviticus and I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, thank you so much for coming back on. And can't wait to visit Israel myself someday. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And that will do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. I'd like to thank Pastor Drew for once again coming back onto the podcast and sharing about his amazing trip to Israel. If you would like to see any of his videos or pictures of his trip, you can. On Instagram, you can search for DrewFrider underscore, all lowercase, or you can see what he posted on Facebook. Just type in the search bar DrewFrider and you'll find everything there. If you would like to buy the book of the Holocaust survivor he got to meet, you can find it on Amazon. The title is A Daughter of Many Mothers, Her Horrific Childhood and Wonderful Life by Raina Quint and Barbara Sofer. The cost is $20. I intend to buy it myself, so I would recommend you do so also. There are countless other books and films about what happened to the European Jews during the Holocaust, and I highly recommend you checking them out. It is tragic and heartbreaking, but that history is one that should never be forgotten, no matter how horrible it is to learn about. Once again, thank you to Pastor Drew for coming on. I greatly enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you did as well. If you would like to learn more about Lyft Church, you can visit their website at liftsby.com, once again, all lowercase, or if you are ever in the Salisbury area, you can come and visit the church in person. We are currently at the Regal Theaters, but within a year or so, we are going to be across the street at the former Gander Mountain, which is now the home of Lyft Church next to Harley-Davidson. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and or a comment to help boost the podcast higher onto the recommendation list. And don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss out on future episodes. I would personally be very grateful to you. Also, please share with your family and friends. The Snowman Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Reason.fm. Or, as I always say, just type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah?